Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you will find insight, analysis, and the story behind the numbers. Hey there, I am Shrivaj from Business Line, and today we have a very interesting topic at hand, which is the Supreme Court's recent judgment on personal guarantors' insolvency. As you are all aware, personal guarantors' insolvency holds. significant importance within the realm of financial transactions and business agreements more so in the indian context where the economy is largely promoter driven and it is usually family members and kitan kin who extend personal guarantees so initiating proceedings against them was always seen to be a challenge and a thorny issue for many lenders a personal guarantor is an individual who pledges to repay a loan or fulfill an obligation on behalf of another party if that party defaults when a personal guarantor faces insolvency it has multifaceted implications in its latest landmark judgment dilip juwarjka versus union of india and others The Supreme Court has upheld the constitutional validity of the IBC provisions as regards section 95 to 100 on personal guarantors insolvency. The Apex Court has dismissed a batch of 384 petitions that challenged their constitutional validity. The Supreme Court ruling is also significant as it comes as relief to lenders who can now proactively use this alternate remedy under the IBC for making recoveries so what would be the impact of this landmark sc ruling on the banking sector and its ability to enhance recoveries from personal guarantors business line spoke to dhananjay kumar partner siril amarchand mangaldas to get a deep dive into the issue and the legal impact of the sc judgment kumar who has extensive experience in indian restructuring and insolvency distressed debt trading and special situations besides cross border insolvency will talk to us about the sc judgment and how it may prove to be a game changer for banks as regards recoveries of corporate dues from personal guarantors welcome to the bl state of the economy podcast mr kumar so mr kumar uh, all my listeners are very keen to know as to what exactly are the key takeaways from this landmark supreme court judgment Sure, Mr. Srivatsan. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, this judgment is quite important in the scheme of IBC, specifically in the context of personal insolvency. As you will recall, IBC was enacted as a code to consolidate insolvency regime for both companies and individuals, while the corporate part of it came out in, or rather, came into effect. in 2016 the individual side of it came into effect in 2019 since then there have been two constitutional challenges 
to the individual insolvency part of the IBC. First was in relation to the split of personal guarantors from other types of individual, which was, uh, you know, dismissed by the Supreme Court sometime in 2022. And, and then we had this uh, constitutional validity uh, in this judgment, which came out a few days back, where constitutional validity of Section 95-200 of the IBC was challenged uh, by multiple personal guarantors on the grounds that uh, the process, and uh, just to recall the, uh, uh, remind the listeners, the Section 95-200 deals primarily with appointment of resolution professional and commencement of insolvency proceedings, as well as interim moratorium. And what the Supreme Court has done is upheld the constitutional validity of these provisions. It also clarifies the role of the adjudicating authority and the resolution professional at the time of admission of such petitions. The key takeaway for me is that the, the, these parts of the IBC have passed the constitutional test by the Supreme Court and therefore can now be swiftly implemented. Got that. Uh, if I were to go slightly uh, deeper into the judgment, what does this ruling that the RP plays no adjudicatory role, but only a facilitative role in preparing report to the adjudicating authority mean? What are the implications of such a conclusion? Sure. Uh, as opposed to the corporate insolvency commencement procedure, in this insol uh, individual insolvency procedure, there is a report that comes in from the resolution professional on what are the sort of facts and merits of the petition that has been filed. The question before the Supreme Court was that while the resolution professional is looking into the petition and submitting a report, is the resolution professional playing an adjudicatory role and therefore whether the guarantor should be given a right of hearing, principles of natural justice should be followed, etc., etc. Supreme Court said that the report of the resolution professional is not in an adjudicatory role and is only in a facilitative role, is not binding on the NCLT or the DRT. And therefore, when the NCLT or DRT looks at the petition in itself, they are performing the adjudic adjudicatory role. The implication of this conclusion is that there are, there are two implications. One is the legal implication, other is the practical implication. The legal implication is that the, the guarantor gets its right of hearing at, before the NCLT and DRT, and that is the proper implementation of the principle of natural justice for IBC in this context. Whereas the resolution professional, in front of the resolution professional, the guarantor provides all information which may be relevant to the petition. And the practical implication is that this makes the admission process expeditious, efficient, and not protracted. What is happening just now is that at the stage of appointment of the resolution professional itself, there are arguments, and therefore the timeline takes a hit. With this clarification, I think the timeline will improve significantly. And this is very important. Bear in mind that unlike the corporate insolvency provisions, the moratorium does not trigger on admission. Under individual insolvency provisions, the moratorium triggers 
at the time of filing itself. And therefore, it is also in the interest of the guarantor that the admission process is not protracted and is efficient. So I would say uh, Supreme Court has made a very helpful clarification to the process. And I'm hoping that this will expedite the admission process significantly. Okay, thank you for that. Now, the other clarification, which has, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, triggered a lot of interest is the Apex Court uh, ruling that sections 95 to 100 are not retroactive, but prospective. That is, these provisions apply only from the date of their enactment. So could you help us understand what does this clarification mean? Uh, what is the uh, going to be the status of all those uh, matters of personal guarantees given before the coming into force of this provision in 2019? Sure. Um, the Supreme Court has specifically answered this question. The Supreme Court, the challenge, one of the challenges before the Supreme Court in this petition was exactly this, that section 95 to 100 are retroactive and, and therefore they operate, they should not operate in respect of personal guarantees which were executed prior to these provisions coming into effect, which is 2019. They specifically said that it is a well-settled principle that a law is not retrospective in nature merely because some parts of the cause of action on which the law operates uh, has arisen in the past. And then they talked about that prior to IBC, the Presidency Towns Insolvency Act and Provincial Insolvency Act, etc. applied. And this, they clarified that, therefore, just because it applies to the guarantees prior, issued prior to 2019, it does not make the provisions retroactive and they dismiss the challenge. The implication of this conclusion is that all the guarantees that have been issued prior to 2019 will also be subject to these provisions of the IBC and the, and the creditors, banks and financial institutions will be able to move against the personal guarantors to seek their recoveries. So in, in a sense, they, uh, banks can go after personal guarantors for their past guarantees also. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Okay. So, should we read this as a setback of sorts for personal guarantors? I wouldn't say it's a setback because ultimately you are talking about a situation where a personal guarantee has been issued, a personal guarantee has been invoked, there has been a default, and, and therefore a creditor should be entitled to take all recovery actions expeditiously and efficiently. That was the very purpose. If you look at the IBC, the preamble itself says one of the objectives is to promote availability of credit. Now, when a creditor lends money, it has to also know that there are efficient and efficacious ways of recovering that money. And what the IBC is doing is providing a mechanism for the creditors to recover that money in a proper way. Whether it is a setback to the personal guarantors, I do not think so, because what it provides is also a framework to the personal guarantors to prepare a repayment plan. Remember that unlike 
corporate insolvency where resolution plan is subject to 29a and many other uh, checks and balances here it is the debtor i.e the personal guarantor who is preparing the resolution plan in the first stage and therefore it gives them an opportunity to come forward and propose a settlement with the creditors which is acceptable to them as a matter of fact if you look at the data from the time these provisions came into force just about 21 uh, repayment plans have already been approved and therefore it is not a setback it is a second opportunity to the personal guarantor as well to deal with liability in a in a way that is peaceful and the reason i say peaceful is there is a moratorium that operates there are not if let's say the personal guarantor has issued say 10 guarantees potentially the personal guarantor can be subject to 10 different drp or civil court proceedings however using this procedure the personal guarantor itself can provide a repayment plan that can make the creditors satisfied of their claims and also you know prevent some trouble for the personal guarantors so overall i would say on balance this is an excellent mechanism for not only recovery but also for liability management of the personal guarantors great so uh, mr kumar the question uppermost in uh, most uh, observers mind is can this landmark supreme court judgment be sent for another review um look procedurally there is a provision for review however it is well settled that a review can only be for a mistake or an error apparent on the face of the court now these are this is settled law this cannot be reheard this cannot be, and, and we have seen this recently in the Vidarbha review as well, that Supreme Court looks at review petitions very, very narrowly. So the short answer is yes, it can be sent for review. However, the grounds for such, such review and the potential for any change in this judgment, I would say is very, very low, unless there is a very apparent mistake or an error apparent on the face of it. Okay. So now uh, the, the the biggest uh, point of interest uh, flowing out of this judgment is what does this do to banks' ability to make recoveries? So from that context, uh, please help us understand if this should be seen as a game changer for IBC or how how does this judgment impact recoveries for banks so sure. um let's let's look at some data let's take a step back and let's look at the data as to what has happened in ibc so far uh, and i will use the ibbi data for this if you look at up till september of this year creditors had made approximately 32 percent recovery on their admitted claims what that means is the haircut was approximately 68%. And this is only from the corporate borrowers. So for the balance 68%, and I'm not saying that each of these cases will be covered by personal guarantees, but to the extent they are covered, 
this provides banks a strong and efficient tool to try to recover the money that they could not recover from the corporate debt. Now let's look at the data, what all the creditors have done so far. So from the time it came into effect, which is 2019, approximately 2000 applications have been filed and claims made is 1.6 lakh crores. Now that is the claim that the banks have made against the personal guarantors. So, so first point is that this is for recovery, which could not be done from the corporate borrowers. So in that sense, it provides a new avenue. It provides an avenue for the banks to go after the personal guarantor. Why is it a game changer? Now, it's a game changer because of two reasons. One is the earlier personal insolvency provisions, which were our Presidency Towns Insolvency Act and Provincial Insolvency Act, were not working as well. The process was a little more protracted. It was not very oft used, etc., etc. Now with IBC, there is a very clear, very, I would say, modern process that has been provided for dealing with insolvency of individuals. So this is the first game changer. The second game changer is uh, the adjudicating authority for these is MCLT and DRT. Now we know MCLTs are being ramped up. They have developed expertise on similar cases for in the past seven or eight years dealing with IBC cases. And therefore, when these cases reach the MCLT and DRT, uh, it will make matters quite effective for the banks. And I'm hoping that this will help them recover. I'm not saying 1.6 lakh crore, but whatever it is, uh, they will be able to go after the personal guarantor and make up for some of the haircut that we have seen, which is 68%, as I said earlier, and, and hopefully recover some of that money. I think that is where the game-changing ability of these provisions stand. Okay, two supplementary questions to this. One, what does this judgment, do you think it will embolden banks to file more cases because many banks were sitting on the wall uh, on going after personal guarantors in the absence of legal certainty on the constitutionality? It, it certainly will. And, and, and let me, I think at this point, I would just make one short point on what is the process that is followed under IBC. Very, very short. Uh, so first, upon admission, there is an insolvency resolution process that starts, which may culminate in a repayment plan, failing which the personal guarantor can be declared bankrupt. Now, bankruptcy means that the assets of the personal guarantor stand transferred to the bankruptcy trustee. And more importantly, the bankrupt is subject to many restrictions and disqualifications, including on being a director, including on travel, including on promoting new companies, standing for public offices, etc., etc. All of these combines are quite effective tools Instead of, let's say, going after personal guarantors for recovery, let's say, in DRT on civil courts. And therefore, I would say this is a much more powerful tool for the creditors to consider. Because if you can go after the personal guarantor 
entire assets and then have them disqualified also for certain other aspects of their life if this can be a very powerful tool so i i completely agree that this may encourage banks and creditors to come forward and file more petitions in respect of those companies great the uh, other uh, point is that it is seen from past cases that the average recovery levels from a personal guarantor is around 5% right if i am right there yes of the 21 that have been approved the recovery is 5% that's right okay and and so do you see this judgment improving that number is that going to be a, a given uh i i wouldn't say that the judgment has a direct impact on improving that recovery but yeah. i want a slightly different point here i think this with this judgment and with the number of petitions we have pending i think time is right for banks and creditors to consider innovative tools of how to recover money from personal guarantors when you say 5% this is only from repayment plans given by the personal guarantors meaning is an acceptance of whatever the personal guarantor had offered whereas if you take it down to bankruptcy as i said earlier if repayment plan uh, is is not acceptable and that is then translating into a bankruptcy the bankruptcy trustee has very wide powers including of avoidance you know many prior transactions can be challenged the bankruptcy trustee can look at uh, recovering assets from other places and one specific point where i think a lot of innovation is possible is cross border now in in several of these cases there may be situations of uh, you know where money has left the shores and you know there have been money has been put in some other structures etc etc now using bankruptcy trustee and using the provisions of the bankruptcy part of these uh, uh, these provisions very powerful recovery tools can be made available to the bankruptcy trustee and i think that is where uh, a lot of opportunity for innovation lies today if, if creditors are able to look at the assets which may have been diverted or siphoned using these provisions i think this can be very very powerful a drt proceeding never gives you these opportunities or powers whereas an ibc proceeding during bankruptcy gives you these uh, these opportunities and powers so when you say 5% uh, and and I, i will add another data point i do not think there has been a single bankruptcy order under the ibc at least as per the as per the uh, newsletter till september and i am very interested and excited to see this bankruptcy process trigger and bankruptcy trustee using its powers in an innovative manner to recover the money which is maybe not available here or maybe assets are not available with the bank to my mind mr shivat i think that is where the opportunity for the banks uh, to recover more money than what has been given in the repayment plans to do sure so uh now the other point is that will this sc ruling impact 
bank credit to industrial sector will will it help uh, or will it bolster the bank credit flow to industrial sector it absolutely will as an if you look at the impact of ibc uh, it is very often said is is not only the process of ibc but is also the threat of ibc which is uh, you know encouraging recoveries bringing credit discipline etc etc and with this there is another tool effective tool that has been given to the creditors so certainly it will help uh, you know credit to the industrial sector because they will know that they have a powerful tool at their disposal to recover money should the loan go bad however i want to add uh, an additional point to this which is that we still need to strengthen our drt and sarfasi infrastructure so that insolvency is not the only effective tool available to the creditors to recover money when you want to encourage bank credit to industrial sector you have to give powerful efficient tools to the creditors to recover their money should the loans go bad and ibc is not the right answer in every situation be it for corporate borrowers or for individual guarantors so you will have to provide multiple effective and efficient tools to creditors to be able to recover their money and strengthening the drt and the sarfasi system i would say is an equally important arrow in their quiver and they will have to uh, you know if that is also strengthened that will be even better for the bank uh, lending to the industry okay interesting that so uh, what according to you would be the next uh, big port of call or the next big area of action on this front i think the banks will certainly look to uh, go after personal guarantors especially in cases where there has been huge haircuts on the corporate borrower side and and the second area uh, which will grow is cross border asset tracing we, while we do not india doesn't have cross border insolvency provisions today but that doesn't mean that a bankruptcy trustee appointed in india cannot use the cross border insolvency provisions in say united kingdom or singapore or the us to exercise their powers collect asset try to recover money so to my mind that is where the innovation and activity uh, is required so that even if there are no assets in india or it is not so easily ascertainable that assets are available the trustees are able to use their legal power including using cross border insolvency tools to recover those money including from outside india so i think that is where there will be a lot of activity due to this so in a sense what you are saying is the that the long arm of the trustee can go beyond the borders absolutely and there are established tools internationally i think it's a question of indian creditors and bankruptcy trustees starting to use those tools uh, and and i i think this can be quite effective uh, going forward great and and do you think the government of india should also now act uh, basis the supreme court order or there is no need for the finance ministry to pass directions to banks to conform to the supreme court judgment 
I I don't think there is a need for a finance ministry to specifically pass any directives. I think as as I discussed earlier, already two thousand applications have been filed. So banks are certainly cognizant of this issue and are taking various steps. And they are also mindful of their sixty eight percent haircut that has come in. So I I don't think it's a question of uh, any directives to be issued. Uh, the decks have been cleared. Uh, many of these, as in three eighty four petitions, were filed in the Supreme Court. And uh, so far as I'm aware, in majority of these three eighty four cases, there was status quo orders passed by various, uh, uh, you know, including Supreme Court, that the proceedings were not moving ahead. And now the proceedings can move ahead. And I'm I'm hoping that banks will also, uh, you know, use their innovation and their energy to make sure that as in, I'm not saying 1.6 lakh crore again, but whatever to the extent possible and using various innovative tools, some of which I alluded to earlier, to recover some of this money. I think that will be the victory of these provisions and, and, and this part of the IBC. Great. So, Mr. Kumar, one last point I would uh, like you to throw some light on a legal nuance, uh, you know, that uh, comes to my mind. Is that in the willful defaulters matter, right? The Supreme Court said that banks will have to hear the uh, borrower concern before going ahead and uh, categorizing him as a willful defaulter, right? Whereas in this personal guarantor issue, the Supreme Court has clarified that the hearing at the pre-admission stage is not required for a personal guarantor. So are there any learnings in uh, the way the Apex Court is looking at these two aspects? Um, Mr. Srivath, I would say it slightly differently. First of all, the judgment that you're referring to, the Rajesh Agarwal judgment in respect of the defaulter, that was very well considered by the Supreme Court in this judgment as well. Uh, and what the Supreme Court has clarified is not that hearing will not be given. What they have specifically said is that that hearing will be given by the NCLT or the DRP at the stage of admission. So no, the Supreme Court is not saying that the debtor is deprived of any opportunity of hearing or participate in the process. Uh, they have read the applicability of principle of natural justice when the adjudicatory process of NCLT comes into it. So it is very much consistent with the established principles of principles of natural justice as as uh, as have been upheld in various Supreme Court judgments. So in essence, there is no departure between the one for willful de uh, defaulters and the one for personal guarantors. I would say absolutely not. It is very much in compliance with established norms of principles of natural justice. Great. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Kumar, for all those insights and perspectives on personal guarantors insolvency matter and also throwing light on the implications of this landmark Supreme Court ruling on the IBC landscape and the uh, implications for the industrial sector in India. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.